I uh, want to begin with just a little intro, which I don't really tell groups of people, but I'm, I'm in my home, my home city, my native city, so I'm going to be free here. Um, our children were four, three, and six months, something like that, when I was asked to go to South Africa and speak on family worship. I'd never spoken on family worship before. And I began to study the Scottish and the English and the Dutch, and particularly the Scottish and, and the Puritans that suddenly made me realize that despite the background of Dutch tradition that probably most of us had, where you pray before a meal and you pray after a meal and you read the Bible, three meals a day, really a good custom. But I began to realize there's a couple things missing. And I got very convicted. I went and told my wife, I said, uh, this is what's missing and this is what's missing and can we change before our kids get older? I want them to get it while they're young. And she said, yes. So we started doing the, the old-fashioned Reformation Puritan type family worship. And then I went to give my address in South Africa and uh, something extremely unusual happened. I after the address, I went to my cabin, put my stuff down, and went back into the cafeteria. And people were eating, but there was no noise. In a cafeteria of 300 people, you just expect to hear buzz, right? And there was nothing. So I, I realized something was wrong. And so I said to the man sitting next to me, I said, what, what's, what's wrong? What's... All he said, you missed it, but the Potchefstroom University president, president of 25,000 school, uh, uh, just broke down and wept when he opened the meeting. And he asked every single pastor here to get these are the days of cassette tapes, to get copies of the cassette tape of this talk and to duplicate it for the whole congregation. He said, because we have missed this in South Africa. And he said, I just feel terribly guilty and my kids are out of the home and don't do as I have done. He must have spoken with a lot of conviction. And everyone was just quiet. Well, I've been to a lot of conferences in my life, and that was an oddity. I never experienced anything like that before or since. But then he came over to me, and he said to me, he actually gave me a charge. He said, you must write this address out in a book, and you must speak it wherever you go. And um, this, is, this is a calling that you have. And you know, it came with a lot of conviction to me. And so I've been doing that for the last 30 years, speaking in dozens of different countries on this subject. And no matter where I go, no matter where I go, the talk on family worship has more impact than, than anything else I do. Because 
Fewer than 5% of Christians, I believe, around the world are doing what our forefathers called family worship. Many are doing little bits and pieces, but I want to present you tonight with what our forefathers have done and how seriously they took what they were doing. So today, we are really missing, for the most part, two primary spiritual disciplines that our forefathers engaged in. One is family worship. The other is the art of meditation, which we seldom engage in as well. And I'm not going to aim too high tonight, like, you know, aim for the absolute ideal. And No, I want to do it realistically, something that you can start out doing the parts that you're presently not doing on a very simple level and, and build them up. That's, that's my goal, that you will not skip any of the four important parts of biblical family worship. Now, it's interesting that when our fathers have done family worship uh, to the best of their ability and often not knowing uh, everything I'll be saying tonight, even that left behind a huge impression. It did in our own family when my parents commemorated their 50th anniversary. Then all five of us children agreed we'd say thanks to my mother for one thing and thanks to my father for one thing and then we would we would uh, record it and we'd have it as a keepsake. I'm glad we did because it was only two years later when my father, some of you recall that, just dropped dead on the pulpit and went straight from the pulpit to glory with a massive heart attack. But all five of us thanked my mother for her secret prayer life. We saw her on her knees every day. And all five of us thanked my father for his family worship. And all five of us said, especially the Sunday night family worship, where he would, we would read the Bible. Every one of us, seven of us, would pick a psalter to sing. We'd sing seven, seven psalters. And then he would pray earnestly, um, longer than normal. And then he would uh, open up Pilgrim's Progress. And we'd go from the beginning to the end and start over about 20 times growing up. And we'd ask him questions. And he'd set the book down. And he'd just teach us how the Holy Spirit worked in the soul. And often the tears were streaming down his face. And my brother Jim, three years older than me, said something very profound. He said, Dad, I want to thank you that I never had to doubt the existence of God. Because in family worship, as you were weeping and teaching us out of love for our souls, my oldest memory in life, I was three years old, but I remember looking up in your face and thinking, God is real. God is real. So thank you, Dad, for family worship. Perhaps you remember when the Space Shuttle Columbia tragically disintegrated during its high-speed re-entry into the atmosphere 
in 2003, and we lost all seven veteran astronauts. The captain of that mission was a man named Rick Husband, a conservative evangelical Christian. What you didn't read or hear about was that just as he went into space, the last thing he did was he gave his son 18 videos and he gave his daughter another 18 videos and he said, I'm going to be gone for 18 days and I can't leave you for one day without giving you family worship. Every video was a day's family worship. I would love to know what those 18 videos mean to those two children now. You know, family worship, even when we do do it seriously, it's easy to slip back. Life is busy. But its value is inestimable. It's a treasure. It's a treasure. Do you know that there were certain Puritan congregations in the 17th century that on family visitation would always ask the father, you know, how are you doing family worship? And if the father said, well, I'm really not doing family worship, they would say, well, we, we want to warn you that you're failing in the major task of fatherhood. And if you're not doing it, when we come by next year for our next visit, we're going to have to put you under quiet censor and forbid you from coming for the Lord's Supper because you are failing as a father in duty number one. Now, that's not every Puritan church, but that shows you how seriously our forefathers took family worship. One of the leading Puritans, Matthew Henry, said this, as goes family worship, so goes the home. And as goes the home, so goes the church. As goes the church, so goes the nation. As goes the nation, so goes the world. He said family worship's the foundation of it all. Because a father is not to just relegate or delegate instruction of his children to the church or to the Christian school, but he has the primary responsibility. And the church and the school are just filling in for him at strategic times when he gives his children over to those institutions. But the father, combined with the mother, have the primary, the premier responsibility. Now, family worship, of course, is not the only factor of of parenting. You can have wonderful family worship, and if you act like a hypocrite, and with your lifestyle you contradict everything you say in family worship, you defeat your purpose. And you demolish what you try to build up in family worship. But family worship is still the foundational plank on which you build your parenting, your paradigm of office-bearing parenting, being teaching prophets and interceding in sacrificial priests and ruling and guiding kings, and for you moms, queens, in your own home. And to understand family worship rightly, you need to, you need to grasp that it has theological underpinnings as well. 
Let me just mention those very briefly in one sentence each. First, our God is a triune God, a God of familial relationships. He has a supreme family, as it were, within himself, without any superior or inferior, by the way. Co-equal, co-eternal. The father-son relationship is not called father and son because God is just trying to relate to us. He creates family on earth as a faint reflection of him, he himself, who is the quintessential family, as it were, the father and the son. He creates fatherhood as a reflection of that fatherhood and sonship and daughterhood as a reflection of sonship. Secondly, his fatherly love overflows into the world he created because he created us in his image. And so God thinks of family as that image-bearing aspect. We don't often think about that. And then, third, God deals with the human race through covenant and headship, where fathers, such as Abraham, lead and represent families in God's promises. So just as Christ is our representative when we're believers in the covenant of grace, you see, so by extension, there's a theological line drawn to the earthly family, and we're to represent Christ and the Father, actually, too, in our own families and be representative of the fear of God to our children. And then, in the New Testament, we see families converted together at times, households, and called to grow in holiness together in the life of the church. So as a covenant-keeping God, God's tendency is to think covenantally. Father, mother, the lines are drawn covenantally. The Gentiles are outside of the lines. Those who are brought up under the external covenant of grace are inside the lines. Say you have six or seven children. What's well, God's normal way to save some of those children? Hopefully all of them in due course. If a Gentile gets saved, what does he do? Well, he goes to the church. He, he comes within the covenantal relationship when he, when, he, when he becomes a member of the church. And he gets married or she gets married and, and, and then they have children within the covenantal lines. God is a family God. He thinks familiarly, which is a reflection of who he is in his own character. That's why the book of Numbers, I, I believe, uses the word family close to 100 times. So there's all these theological underpinnings to family worship and relationship of God's own character, the covenant, his promises, his faithfulness to work along covenantal lines. Douglas Kelly concludes from all this, family religion, which depends not a little on the household head, daily leading the family before God in worship, is one of the most powerful structures that the covenant-keeping God has given for the expansion of redemption through the generations so that countless multitudes may be brought into communion with and worship the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do with you in the next 40 minutes 
is I want to look at four thoughts. First, we're going to look at the duty of family worship. What exactly are we supposed to do? What are these four things? Second, the implementation. This will be the longest point. The practical how-tos. I'm just going to... These are not thus set the Lord how-tos, necessarily, though some of them are. But practical advice, how to do what the Bible says we must do in ways that are most effective. And then third, I'll just touch briefly on a few objections. And then fourth, I want to conclude with some, some powerful motivations to do family worship. So duty, implementation, objections, and motivations. So turn with me to Joshua 24. I want to read just verses 14 and 15. 14 and 15. We'll refer to a few other passages as we, as we go along. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. This is Joshua, by the way, giving his farewell address. He's 100 years old. And this is what he says to Israel, among many other things. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve, or you can translate it, worship ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve or to worship the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve or worship, whether the gods which your fathers served or worshipped that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve or worship the Lord. What do you notice there? Well, a few things, a few important things. Number one, Joshua doesn't make this optional. He doesn't say, children, are you, are you okay with worshiping the Lord daily? No, no. As for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. Second, Joshua enforces the service of God on the whole nation by setting an example himself. He has such command over his family that he speaks for the entire household as he's parting from the scene. He's saying, my children will go on and do this custom, this tradition, this practice. And my grandchildren will do it as well. As for me and my house, it's a word that includes several generations. They will keep doing family worship. It's kind of interesting that um, I had a custom for a little while there for about a year before our firstborn got married that I would take him out once a month or so, tried to do it once a month, didn't always succeed, to a restaurant and we'd just sit and talk um, for a while. I'd, I'd try to give him advice and I'd have several things jotted down. And then the month came just before the wedding. And I sat him down and said, uh, all right, Kelvin, um, this is the last time I'm doing this unless you ask me to keep doing it. And uh, you're going to form a new family unit, so I've got to take a step back. You're going to be the head of a household. And uh, if you come to me for advice sometimes, I mean, that's fine. I'd be happy to give you advice. But 
Otherwise, I'm out of here because you're uh, out of here in terms of giving you unsolicited advice because you're the head, you're going to be the head of a new, new family. And I had seven or eight points, a little heavy agenda that I wanted to pass on to him the last time, make sure he got it right. One of those was make sure he'll do family worship. But something interesting happened in the course of the conversation. I just realized, like, I don't have to ask him that. Of course he's going to do that. See, if it's just a habit, if it's a holy habit, as the Puritans would say, in a way, it's like brushing your teeth in the morning. You just do it. You don't ask, am I going to do it? See, the question should not be, am I going to do family worship? The question should be, Lord, help me to, that the family worship I do today will be edifying and stamped with divine benediction. It's not a question if I'm going to do it. It's a question of how am I going to do it. And so I said to myself, it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. I said, no, I don't even need to ask him. Of course he's going to do it. I mean, if we push back from the supper table when our kids were young and we just disappeared. If I disappeared without doing family worship, I mean, my kids would say, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? Well, what happened? You forgot to do, Dad, you forgot to do family worship. So it's very important you don't make family worship a hit and miss thing. But yet you can say on your deathbed, in your final days to your children, I know that you will worship the Lord. What a blessing Joshua could say that. And then you look later in this chapter, it's very amazing. Verse 31. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. I mean, those were the days when, when a leader could impact a whole nation. Serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived. Overlived is an old-fashioned word. It, it really means the next generation after Joshua, which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. So imagine that. He does family worship daily, impacts his whole family, and his family's example impacts the nation, and the nation is worshiping the Lord not just for that generation, but a whole nother generation before they depart and go their own ways as Israel so often did. So what a benediction this daily family worship was. Now, what exactly does the Bible say then we have to do? Four things. Number one is the daily reading of the word of God. I'm going to be short here because... I'm assuming that everyone here is reading in their families the Bible every day. I can't imagine anyone not doing at least that much. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17 is, is, is a nice proof text where Timothy is raised, even by a mother and a grandmother, daily in the scriptures, and admonished to continue steadfastly in those scriptures in which he's been raised. So that, that's a very obvious one. The rubber hits the road with number two. Daily instruction in the Word of God. And that's where so many of us missed out, where our fathers didn't do that. Or did it only hit and miss. And even my own dad, as godly as he was in many ways, um, 
Most days, he'd read a chapter and then he'd say to us, when we were little kids, I, I just remember that. Oh, what's the last word? And I don't know, a kid has ability to be totally tuned out. What's the last word? And suddenly, oh, last word, um, God. Very good, son. Well, I didn't listen to a thing. It was horrific. That was not effective teaching. So that's an example that is not very good. But the point is that so many fathers did not talk about what you just read and didn't even have the children read along. Fathers just did the whole thing themselves and it was like a solo read and everybody tuned out most of the time, unless God was really working in your heart perhaps or you, you just had a very, very tender conscience maybe. But the Bible is so plain here that the father is to instruct the children and of course, with the help of the mother, obviously. But how can you get plainer than Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7? These words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart, and thou shalt teach them, that is my word, teach them diligently unto thy children, and shall talk of them. Talk of them? When? When thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Don't, that's just an expression. All those are daily activities. That's just a Hebrew expression saying, you've got to do it every day. You lie down every day. You get up every day. You walk every day. This is not something every other day. This is not something once a week. It's every day. And it's not just a little casual talk. It's something you're earnest about. Teach them diligently. Diligent instruction flows from the burning heart of a father. So many Christian fathers today get more excited about the score of some ball game than they do about Jesus Christ in family worship. There's something wrong when the things of this world make us more diligent, more excited more transfixed than God's own son. So this is our duty, to bring this to our children with passion, with earnestness. And that's what my dad was really good at. I mean, when he spoke to us, wow. We knew he loved our soul. Sometimes wondered if he cared about our daily life at all. Well, my mother made up for that. Um, but we knew. We knew that he was fulfilling what J.C. Ryle said, soul love is the soul of all love. So that's number two. Daily instruction of the word of God. Number three, daily prayer to the throne of God. Daily prayer to the throne of God. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word God and by prayer, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Of course, you know the text in 1 Corinthians 6, where to do everything to the glory of God with prayer, also whether we eat or drink. You know the text in Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jeremiah has the most profound statement when he says, 
the family that does not pray together will bring down upon them, and listen to this word, the fury of Almighty God. Fury. Fury. Fury is strong. God is angry when a father does not pray with his family. Now by prayer, we're not just saying, Lord, bless this food and drink for Jesus' sake and um, thank you for the good weather today and go with us tonight. Amen. No, this is to be an earnest prayer. You teach diligently. You pray earnestly. So that's our duty. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, the family that does not pray together is like a house without a roof exposed to all the storms of heaven. A family's daily life should be marinated in the prayer of the Father. And, as I'll argue momentarily, of the mother and children as well. And number four, daily singing, daily singing of the praise of God. That was forgotten in our household when I grew up, for the most part. We weren't very much of a singing family, unfortunately, except on Sunday night. But Psalm 118, verse 15, is very plain. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is heard in the tents of the righteous, not the synagogue. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Philip Henry, the father of the famous Matthew Henry, said, this is a clear reference to singing in the families. Now, the Puritans always said, the singing should be the last of the four. Because the words you sing abide on your memory the longest. Something about singing that makes you memorize the words. And the tune goes through your head with the words. And so, whether it's morning worship or whether it's evening worship, Puritans, by the way, did two family worships every day because they said there's a morning sacrifice, there's an evening sacrifice. But, although they did the evening one longer usually, but what happens, you see, is as you go out into the day then, that, that psalm, or perhaps today a classic hymn, abides on the memory bank longer and it edifies you as you go out into the, into the work sphere. So, God's word commands these four things. The Lord Jesus is worthy of it. And I hope your conscience can affirm it. Because you do owe yourself and you do owe it to your family that your family shows its allegiance to God. And so as a father, God has placed you in a position of authority to guide your children in the ways of the Lord. You're more than a friend. You're more than an advisor to, to your family, you're, to your children. You're, you're their teacher and ruler. You're their prophet. You're their example. You're their prayer warrior, their priest. So clothed with holy authority, you owe to your children prophetical teaching and priestly intercession and royal guidance. And that is all reflected in your leading of family worship by scripture, by prayer, by teaching, and by song. Well, how do you do it then? How do you implement it? That, that's point two. Well, 
First, it requires just a little bit of preparation. Once you get this in order, it becomes automatic. But we found the best thing to do was not to do it around the dinner table. People are looking for their books. and No, go to another room, and in that room you should have as many people as you have in your family. You should have chairs, and you should have a pile of books next to each chair. And it's all organized. So there's the Psalter book, there's the the Bible, maybe you're doing a daily devotional, there's the daily devotional, maybe you're working through Pilgrim's Progress, there's Pilgrim's Progress. Copy for each person. So every child who's six years old or older can follow along, be involved. That's important. And then, during family worship, aim for brevity. Aim for brevity. Don't provoke your children. If you worship twice a day, um, 10 minutes in the morning probably is plenty long because trying to get the kids out to the bus or whatever you're doing. In the evening, maybe you can go a bit longer. If you start out, you're not doing it. Start out with three minutes and build. But don't go too long. I, I, I hear these stories of fathers, sometimes as a result of my talks, they, they get really convicted and then they go out and they do a 45-minute family worship the first day, and I go, oh, no, no. I know that's not going to last, because I know the family's going to get restless. It's, gonna, it's, it's an overkill. You start out small, and you build. Three, don't indulge in excuses to avoid family worship. I've had fathers say something like this to me. Oh, I just lost my temper against one of my kids. There's no way I can do family worship right now. And I said to him, now you've got to do it. It's more important than ever. Because you, your son needs to hear you say in your prayer, Father, Father in heaven, please forgive me for being a poor father now. I lost my temper against my son. Please forgive me. You need it more than ever. Or don't say, I, I, I'm just too tired. To, I, I just can't do it. I can't do that 10 minutes. I'm just too tired. Well, I can appreciate a man being tired after a hard, long day's work. But you know God will give you the strength to do the 10 minutes. Jesus was very tired when he carried the cross for you to Calvary. More tired than you've ever been. And he didn't lay it down and say, I can't do it anymore, Father. You can do 10 minutes. He'll help you. So just have a principle inside of you. No excuses. No excuses. And then four... Lead family worship with a firm, fatherly hand and a soft, penitent heart. Speak with hopeful solemnity. Expect great things from a great covenant-keeping God. God has converted tens of thousands of children in family worship throughout the centuries. Why wouldn't he convert yours? And what a joy to be used as a means, as a father or as a mother for the conversion of your own children in family worship. Okay, let's get more specific. Four parts, few, a few pointers for each part. Reading of scripture. Subpoint number one, have a plan. Have a plan. Uh, we basically said, okay, 
In the morning, our family worship was very short. We often used Psalms and Proverbs. Kids had to get out, you know, school. And uh, it, was, it, it was quick, five minutes, seven minutes maybe. Um, but we found the Psalms and Proverbs to be very helpful books for that. Just a few verses. Prayer. Just a little word or two talking to them. And uh, actually we didn't sing in the morning. I don't think we probably should have. But, and then in the evening though, you see, you can, you can read more verses. Uh, as you get going in a rhythm. Start out with just a few, but build to maybe... Well, if you read the New Testament, I think 10 verses is still plenty. New Testament is very packed. Old Testament, you read a story, maybe you can read 20. But don't read long passages. And when your kids are very young, read a lot of the stories. They haven't developed an analytical mind yet until about eight or nine years old. So go through Genesis. It's almost all stories. Ruth, do the Gospels, the miracles, the parables. But by the time they're eight or nine, if most of them are above that age, you can transition to reading the whole Bible and just, just from cover to cover. Maybe Old Testament one night, New Testament the next night, that's fine. But have a plan. J.C. Ryle said, fill their minds with scripture, let the word dwell in them richly, give them the Bible, the whole Bible, even while they're young. But also, feel free to break into that plan. Account for special occasions. Is it a Sunday morning you're going to have the Lord's Supper? Why not read Matthew 26 or Isaiah 53? Say a few words about the sufferings of Jesus and about the Lord's Supper. Um, my dad had a really neat tradition, I think. We get, we, on summer vacation days, when we're about ready to leave, everybody would help, of course, to get the car entirely packed. And uh, then when the car was completely packed, there's nothing else to bring out, instead of hopping in the car and praying in the car, he'd say, okay, get back in the house now. Let me go back in the house. And he reads Psalm 91 or Psalm 121 about the angels protecting you or about no evil shall befall you that preserve you going out, coming in, and so on. So we, we, after a lot of summer vacations, we pretty well had those two chapters memorized. But it was a wonderful tradition. And then we would get down on our knees, all seven of us, and we would cry out to God. My dad would cry out for protection and guidance. And that type of thing, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that the Puritans called the helpful, holy habits. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, before you take a summer vacation, you should do this. But the principles are there, you see. You need protection, so you do this. And you can find your own ways here and find your own plans. Uh, involve the whole family. Now, when your kids are six and seven and they're reading very slowly, I mean, I tried this, it didn't work. So I'd say, okay, we've got 18 verses tonight, and uh, Lydia, you're six years old now, and you, you're starting to learn to read. Why don't you read two verses, and the rest of us read four each. It amounts to 18. 
Daddy, how come I can't read as many verses as the other? Well, okay, read four verses. Oh, it took a long time. But she feels included. You see, it was worth the time. It's worth the time. So bear with that beginning reader. That will mean a lot when that child feels really included in, in the reading. So you involve the whole family. And it's also a way of teaching your children how to read the Bible. When they're very young, as they start to read better, inevitably they're going to start reading it too fast. Like they read another book. Say, no, no, son, you're reading the Word of God. Read slower. And read with more expression. This is a, this is a living, breathing, authoritative, divine, inspired book. And then you model it for them. And it only takes two or three times, maybe. And they get the habit of reading. Seven, eight years old. Reading the Bible with reverence. Which wouldn't happen if you didn't have them participate. And then, I'm going to put a point in here that we didn't do, that I wish we had done, looking back. It'd be great if two, three times a week you could select a short text that's really apropos and say to them, let's memorize this text and repeat it five or six times and then ask it the next night. And especially when they're young, it's good to have them memorize the Bible so it gets ingrained in their soul. Well, that's some hints for, for reading scripture. What about the biblical instruction? Well, the main point here, the main point here is that whatever the chapter is about, you want to take the two, or maybe three sometimes, but, but certainly two, major takeaways from that chapter. And you want to talk to your children about those things. Now, here's the most difficult part. Because the Puritans would often take out a half an hour in the morning to get up at 5 o'clock and spend from 5.30 to 6 preparing for family worship that evening. And I've tried to, in my early days of talking about family worship, tried to encourage fathers to do that, tried to encourage myself to do that, and I found it hard to do. And I think almost every father I know finds it hard to do. Ideally, that would be great. If you're doing that, you don't, you don't, need, you don't need this... Uh, this book on family, family worship Bible guide. But here, here, I'll tell you what happened. I was in South Carolina. And there's this guy named Dr. Michael Barrett. And I was out to lunch with him one day. And uh, I, had this, I had this huge burden that someone, someone has to take the bull by the horns and actually write out, write out the two or three major takeaways from each chapter and end with a question so that the fathers could just read it, end with a question, the mother can jump in, some of the kids can jump in, and you could just have a natural discussion that flows out of the question. And so I'm explaining that to Dr. Barrett. He's, he's a new friend in my life. And he said to me, well, you know what I'm burdened with? I'm burdened with the fact that the King James Version doesn't have a single Bible study set of notes that is reformed. They're either Arminian or they're dispensational. And I said, well, maybe we should combine the two. Maybe if we got enough people to help, we could do a Bible study 
KJV, with notes that are thoroughly reformed and reliable, and then add, at the end of the chapter, a family worship section of the two major takeaways of each chapter. Maybe we could hit two birds with one stone. And then we said, wow, but this is a, this is a long job. I said, well, I'll tell you what. You're an Old Testament guy. I had no dream at that point that he'd actually come to Grand Rapids, accept our call, and become a part of our faculty. But I said, you're an Old Testament guy, and he'd been teaching Old Testament 40-some years at that point, or 40 years. And I said, I'll go to Dr. Bilkes, the New Testament guy in our seminary. I'll ask him if he's willing to edit the New Testament. I'll be the general editor of the whole thing. And uh, we'll try to get some guys to work with us. He said, yeah, that's a good, that's good. I come up here, I go, I go to Dr. Bilkes, and he says, I've been burdened with the same thing. I'd be glad to do the New Testament. I felt like it was a God thing. So it took us um, eight or nine years, and we got another 10 guys to help to do original notes, but then we went over all the notes. And so that's how this Bible Heritage KJV Study Bible was born. And then later, because a lot of people, of course, aren't using the KJV, we decided to take all the family worship sections out and to put them in this family worship Bible guide. So that's how this book came to be born. This is by far double, triple, maybe quadruple our best selling book. Tens of thousands of people are using this today. And uh, I hope. I hope that people in our own churches are using it as faithfully as people outside of our, our church walls are. But uh, it's changed, it's transformed the family worship of uh, tens of thousands of families. And I've done nothing in my life that's got so much feedback as, as this book. And uh, we encourage each family member to have a copy in their pile and they follow along. They can study what their dad is reading when he reads the questions. And then they're ready to give an answer. Or they have the study Bible themselves as, as children. And all work out of the same study Bible. The advantage of that, of course, is that you can talk about the notes also in family worship. Or when there's an old-fashioned word, you can see what the modern equivalent is. Or when there's a question about what does a certain verse mean, you can look down and about eight times out of ten, there's an explanation. And you read it together and you talk about it. So the important point is that you, you take the major takeaways. If the chapter is primarily warning, you have a warning family worship. If the chapter is primarily comforting, you have a comforting family worship, and so on. So you encourage family dialogue in kind of like a Q&A form. You can also add questions after you talk about a question. If a question comes in, you think, oh, I've got a seven-year-old here, and that question was for a 12-year-old. You try to simplify the question. Ask it in a slightly different way. Now, if the children in the dialogue take the discussion in somewhat of a different way, that's fine. The point is, you've got to be talking about the things of God every day. And so as you go through the whole Bible, say it takes you three years, because you're going through slowly, and they live, say, 18 years in your home, or 20, maybe you're going through the Bible six times. But if you go through it six times, you see, because the Bible talks about every subject under the sun, you are actually talking with your children about every subject under the sun. 
And that's wonderful. Family worship is God's gift to you to help you do your basic fatherly and motherly duty. Now, when you do it, be sure to be relevant in application. Share your own experiences. If some text has been meant very much to you in a particular chapter, tell your children that. Share with them your own experience. Share with them the experience of someone in the church that you know was saved through that text. And don't be afraid to repeat it next time around, three years later. Every time we come to Psalm 31, I, I used to tell the children about this remarkable conversion in our church from a sermon of Octavius Winslow. I wanted them to feel that God is working today, not just back in the Reformation day. He's working in the souls of different people and in my soul and in mom's soul. And so you tell, you share what it's like that the Lord applies the word in special ways to our hearts and to our lives. But yes, yeah, sometimes I talk to them about the Reformers or the Puritans or what God has done in ages past, just like Psalm 78 says. So we don't forget the works of God. And then be affectionate in manner. When the kids are young, oh, it's a great time. It's a great time. Put one on one knee, one on the other. Put your arm around them. Have them both kind of turn toward you. And you look them eyeball to eyeball. And you talk to them. Just like the Proverbs author talked to his children. Come near, my son. I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you understanding. It's warm. It's affectionate. It's, it's lovely. And, and children feel. You know, when children are very young, they actually look at their father and mother, sort of like they're gods. Do you, do you understand that? They, they feel to their father like they're getting teaching directly from heaven when you do it with reverence. That's, a, that's actually a good thing. But of course, we're sinners right along with them and we need God's help as well. But when you, when you talk to your children, give them the feeling like you just cannot miss any of them in heaven one day. You just, they just so badly need this teaching. And, and, and when your children are saved and, and some of them are married, you start praying for your grandchildren. Lord, I can't miss, I can't, my dad used to say that all the time, I can't miss any of them on the right side of Jesus Christ. Make us an undivided family reserved for the heavenly mansions above. How many times I heard that? And often with tears. Affectionate teaching. And then require attention. I still remember one of our children I don't know where in the world that came from, but it's about 10 years old and just kind of slouched on the couch for family worship and kind of dangled the leg over one end of the couch. I said, what are you doing? We're worshiping God. Zoom, he sits up, you know. And of course. You, if the phone rings, you don't jump up and get it. This is the most important event of your day. There's an answering machine. You don't interrupt the audience you have with Almighty God for the mere voice of a human being. You see, family worship is almost like, it's, it's relaxing and it's not rigid and you talk freely, but in a way it's like a, like a, like a sacred Bible study or like a, almost like a mini church service. 
You're teaching young children also how to sit during family worship, to show reverence even in their body posture. Now what about praying? Well, as a general rule, don't pray over five minutes. Don't preach in your prayer. Don't teach in your prayer. Lord, the Lord knows everything. You don't need to teach him anything. You teach with your eyes open. You pray with your eyes shut. Be simple without being shallow. Pray for things that your children know something about. But also stretch them a bit sometimes in your prayers. Don't let your prayers become trivial or self-centered. Be direct. Pray for the big things, the soul. But also pray for the small things. Johnny's got a test tomorrow. Lord, help him in that, that math test. Help him to study hard tonight and to do well tomorrow. Esther is coming down with the sickness, Lord. Please help her beat back this, uh, this flu bug she seems to be getting. Ask your wife when you come home from work, are there any specific needs for the children I can remember in prayer tonight? And be varied in the prayer. And teach your children how to pray. Teach them the Acts formula. We found that to be the best one. When you go to pray, you adore God. Then you confess your sins. Then you have thanksgiving. And then you have supplications. This prevents prayer from becoming just like little kids will tend to make prayer like a grocery shopping list. But no, no, that's the last part, children. First you adore God. Then you confess your sin. Then you thank him. And then comes your needs. And teach your children how to pray in the prayer time. Um, it kind of happened accidentally to us. Calvin was sitting on my lap as a three-year-old, and I was about to close the family worship with prayer. And he said, uh, Daddy, can I pray the Daddy's Prayer? I said, well, um... Yeah, you can. I'm, I'll whisper it in your ear and you say something. And I'll whisper something else and you say it. That's how it went. I whispered the whole prayer in his ear and he said it. Then when he was four, I said, now you start it. And then when you run stuck, just poke me in the stomach a little bit. And I'll continue. He did that from four to seven. And when he was seven, I said, now you just take the whole prayer. And I, then I, we did that with the daughters as well. And um, that's one thing I think we did do right so that when they were seven or eight, I mean, one child's different than another. One still felt a little self-conscious praying in front of peers, but the other two not. They just pray freely in front of an eight-year-old, pray in front of an eight-year-old, no problem. Because, well, they're used to praying. So I would do the opening prayer of family worship, and I asked my wife and my three children to take turns doing the closing prayer. And of course, only the Holy Spirit can teach them to truly pray. But I've, I've worked in a congregation where people didn't pray at all aloud in front of each other. And then they finally got married. They'd never prayed aloud in their entire life. And they were petrified and didn't know how to do it. Start when they're three years old. Teach them how to pray. And then for singing. Sing doctrinally pure songs. It doesn't make sense to sing hymns that are Arminian when you're teaching them the Reformed faith all their life. Choose your songs carefully. And don't forget to sing psalms. 
They're an anatomy of all parts of the soul, said Calvin. And teach your children to sing heartily and with feeling. And if one or more of them can play instruments, hey, get out the instruments. Sing around the piano or the organ or... What did Calvin have for a while? What was that thing called? Trombone, yeah, trombone. It's wonderful to, to sing together. And after family worship, when you retire for the night and you get down on your knees with your wife side by side, what a sacred time that is, isn't it so? And you pray together. She prays one night, you pray the next. Just say, Lord, please remember our feeble efforts. Please bless them in family worship today. And if it was a really bad day, say, forgive me, Lord. I just didn't do it well. Forgive me. Help me to do it better tomorrow. But don't beat up on yourself endlessly so that you're discouraged to even do it the next day. God is mindful of our human frailty. He remembers that we are dust. What about objections? Very briefly now. Our family doesn't have time for this. I love the response of Samuel Davies, the southern revivalist who was a counterpart to Edwards in the north. He said, pray tell me. What is your time given to you for? Isn't that principally that you may prepare for eternity and prepare your children? Have you no time for what is the greatest business of your lives with regard to your own children? Another objection. There is no regular time when all of us can be together. In my mind, that's, that's the biggest struggle with many, in many homes. And uh, I didn't think it would be that way, but boy, when kids get to be 16, 17 years old, and they're off jobs or they're off in college, and it's, it's tough sometimes to get them all together. I wish those who had missed family worship on a particular day. I wish when they came home late at night, I had the discipline to go to them and say, come apart with dad for a little while. Let's go in a side room. Let's just have a five minute family worship just with you. If I had to do it over again, I hope I would actually do that. But I didn't. But I think that would be wonderful if you could do that. But just try to get as many as possible together and have a, have a regular time every day we found the best time was right after supper before evening church activities would begin. So we eat early enough, have enough time for family worship. Objection number three, our family's too small. No, it's not, unless you're a single, but then you're not a family. So if two or three are gathered in my name, I would be in the midst. So husband and wife. My wife and I do family worship just like we did when our kids were home. We use the family worship Bible guide just like we did when our kids were home. And it's wonderful. Some of our people object, but I'm not very good at leading family worship. Well, with the Family Worship Study Bible Guide, it's not that difficult. The important part is that you're sincere. Matthew Henry says, it takes no uncommon gifts to lead an edifying family worship for a father. No uncommon gifts. You don't have to be a minister or an elder. George Whitfield says, where the heart is rightly disposed, it does not demand any uncommon abilities to discharge family worship in a decent manner. All right. Finally, fourth point. 
motivations for family worship. The eternal, number one, the eternal welfare of our loved ones. Do you want your children saved? Don't you want to use all the means possible to have them snatch as brands from the burning? You want to pray with them. You want to teach them. You want to sing with them. You want to weep over them. You want to admonish with them. You want to plead with them. Remember, at every family worship, what you're doing is you're ushering your children into the very presence of the Most High God, and you're calling, you're seeking grace to bring down the benediction of the Almighty upon your household. If tens of thousands of children, as church history validates, have been saved in family worship, why wouldn't you use such a successful means? Secondly, the satisfaction of a good conscience. I love the uh, deathbed. Have you ever read that of, of Matthew Henry? Where he gets all his kids around him. And he says, you know, I haven't been a good father in many ways. Will you please forgive me? And they all, they all forgive him. And then he gets bold and he says, but I, I, I don't want to see any of you on the wrong side of Christ on the judgment day. And you go, wow. Matthew Henry, how could you be so bold? But he goes on and he says, because every day in family worship I have lifted up the name of Christ before you. Don't meet me on the wrong side of Christ. Don't reject all that teaching all those years about Jesus. He couldn't say that if it wasn't for family worship. When I was accosted in Latvia, and um, I was laying on the ground, face down, with my hands tied tightly behind me, and my ankles tied, and my mouth gagged, and a tie around my eyes. And a knife was going up and down my back, and they were shouting, they were the mafia, and I thought I was going to die. In fact, I didn't even think of the possibility that I would live. As I lay there for 45 minutes in that position, a thought crossed my mind. What would I talk about to my children if I could have one more time to say something? And you say, I'm a busy guy, <laughs> too busy. I was always too busy, I regret that. But there would have been hundreds of things I hadn't talked to them about if it weren't for the gift of family worship. But because we had family worship, you see, you end up talking about everything. I actually couldn't think of anything at that moment. Not because I'm a good dad, but because the Bible's a good Bible. <laughs> and it talks about everything. So if you want satisfaction of a good conscience, daily do family worship. And if you haven't done it, and now it's past the time and you're feeling very guilty right now, do it with your grandchildren in small ways. Ask your children, can I spend some time with the grandchildren and just talk to them about the Bible? Third motivation, assistance in child-rearing. There's something beautiful about doing an open family worship where you talk about your most intimate spiritual experiences, you talk about everything under the sun. Well, it's like putting money in the bank for the teen years when so many young people close up and talk to their friends openly but no more to their parents. If those kids are used to talking about everything and you've talked about everything, to them. And you keep that open communication. 
Family worship is like putting money in the bank for those teen years. And you can, you can, you can draw on that and continue talking to them about everything. Number four, the shortness of time. You have 365 days a year. Say your children are in your home 20 days, 20 years. That's 7,300 opportunities to speak to them directly about the Lord from the Bible outside of other times in between family worships. You know what? Those 20 years go by like that. You blink a couple times and your kids are teenagers. You blink a couple more times. You know what I'm talking about, you older ones. They're gone. They're gone. And yes, the Lord can restore the years the locusts have eaten. But make the most, make the most of those 20 short, short, short years. James 4.14 For what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And then, last motivation, love for God and his church. I've had the privilege of serving three churches in my life. They've all been right around seven to 800 people each. Just a strange twist of providence, I suppose. But when I look out over the congregation in each church, and I ask, I've noticed this, I ask myself the question, what are the three or four or five or maybe 10, backbone families of this church. I mean, the families where their children grow up and they, oh, they make good elders and deacons like their dads, and like their grandpas, and they're solid, rock solid, and they're dedicated. And Not always, but most of the time, most of the time, it's where their dad is doing daily, intentional, conscientious family worship. So I want to close this talk by giving you just a beautiful, beautiful example of the power of family worship. And I do that from the story of John Patton. And uh, John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, to the cannibals. And when he was 18 years old, he left for university and he tells this wonderful story and I'll conclude with this. For the last half mile of six mile journey, my father and I walked in silence. My father, as was his custom, carrying his hat in his hand, I knew his lips that were moving were moving in prayer for me. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. Then, he grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God bless you and keep you from evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears, we embraced and parted. I ran as fast as I could and went about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered, where I left him, where I left him, gazing after me, waving my hat goodbye. I was around the corner in an instant, but my heart was too full, too sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and just wept for a while. And then rising cautiously, I climbed the dike 
to see if he yet stood there. At that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike, looking after me. He had not seen me. After he gazed in my direction for a while, he got down and set his face towards home, began to return, his head still uncovered, I noticed. So I know his heart was still rising in prayer for me. I watched him through blinding tears until his form faded from my gaze. And then hastening on my way, I vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve and dishonor such a father, such a mother as he had given me. He was unconverted at the time. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, his tears, the prayers, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, the walking away, head uncovered, have often, all throughout my life, risen vividly before my mind and do so now while I am writing, as if it all happened an hour ago. In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, my father's parting form would rise before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of my father's hopes and in all my Christian duties might faithfully follow his shining example. And then here it comes. How much my father's prayers at this time impress me. I can never explain nor can any stranger ever understand. But when on his knees and all of us kneeling around him in family worship, he would pour out his whole soul in tears for the conversion of the heathen world to the service of Jesus and for every personal need. And we would all feel as if we were in the presence of the living Savior. And we learned to love and know him as our divine friend. And as we would rise from our knees, I used to steal a look at the light on my father's face and wish I were like him in spirit, hoping that in answer to his prayers, I might be privileged myself to carry the gospel to the heathen world in some way. No coincidence that John Payton went to the cannibals and that when his wife died and his son died and his home was burnt down, and he had nothing left, and he was afraid the cannibals were going to capture him and eat him, kill him and eat him. He climbed up into a tree, didn't run away. As he tried to sleep in the tree and his heart was overwhelmed, he said he looked up into the sky, and it was as if the Lord had written in capital letters across the sky, I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. And he went on ministering to the cannibals. Thousands were converted. The shining example of his father impacted that whole ministry. God help us to do daily, affectionate, intentional, biblical, family, worship. Let's pray. Gracious God, we've heard our duty. We've heard some of the hows. Please help each father to add to the hows or subtract according to his own family, but do help us to teach our children diligently the truths of the Bible and the needs of their soul 
and the sweetness of Christ and the all-sufficiency of the Savior and the dreadfulness of hell and the beauties and glories of heaven and all the things of God. Bless us now. Bless our fellowship time and our book-buying time and be near and dear to each of us. And please grant too, Lord, that the women may assist, the, the mothers, the wives assist their husbands, the fathers, in doing family worship. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you just give me, I know I was a little long-winded here, sorry about that, but give me five minutes and I will, I will walk you through a couple of these books. We just brought about 10 books or so. They're all 50% off. RHB is nonprofit, but at conferences like this, little mini conferences, we do special prices. If you don't have Family Worship Bible Guide for you and all the members of your household, please, please get it. This is a little Family Worship book I wrote at the insistence of that Pachastrom president. Um, this is an extension of what I just gave you. Probably twice as long, giving you a little more detail how to do it. These, this is a new series of books on family worship that have grown out of, out of people coming to us and saying the family worship Bible guide relates best to children 10 and over. Could you do something for children 3 or 4 to 9? So that's what these are. It's going to be a nine-volume set, The Lord Willing and We Live, by uh, Nick Thompson, one of our graduates, a very godly young man, now an OPC minister in Tennessee. And, and I collaborate on this. He writes half and I write half. This is the beginning. It's called Beginning. This is 92 Family Worships in the book of Genesis. And this is, just came out two weeks ago, Wilderness, Family Worship in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So we have six volumes projected for the Old Testament and three for the New Testament. Right now we're working actually on volume seven on the Gospels. And we're going to go back and forth from the Old to the New. A couple other things here. Um, our seminary does a trip every year which are, they really are trips of the lifetime and people are bonded and they just have a wonderful time. Um, next year, we're doing our very first trip to, to Egypt. We hope to, Lord willing, March 25 to April 6, climb Mount Sinai to the very top and see where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Hope to travel down the Nile, hope to see places where Joseph was. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. Dr. Bilkis and I, and Sharif Faim, who's an Egyptian, who got his PhD from us and knows Egypt like the back of his hand and is extraordinarily gifted, are going to be leading this tour. So there's uh, some of these on the table. We can only take 75 people. We're getting close to 60. So we can have maybe seven or eight more couples or singles uh, are welcome to join as well. Um, a few more books from RHB. This is my wife's most recent book, Teach Them to Work, Building a Positive Work Ethic in Our Children. It's been reprinted twice already in the first year, I believe, and uh, just really, really popular right now. Uh, and uh, it will encourage, it's very practical, it will encourage you to encourage your children to work and to enjoy that work. 
This is a brand new book, came out last week. A friend of mine in Brazil, we translated it actually into English from Portuguese. It's called Theology, Piety, and Mission, the influence of Heisbertus Vucius on missiology and church planting. A great little book that is a spin-off popular book from his doctoral dissertation. He's an extraordinarily gifted man. Stanley Gale, this book came out yesterday, A Living Faith, A Devotional Journey Through James. Hot off the press. These four books are God and me. I need to trust in God. I need to hope in God. I need to love God. I need to love other people. Written by my wife and myself for very young children, three to six. Some of you for your grandchildren. Um, And they tell stories that illustrate the way of salvation. Not just a moral, but the way of salvation for very young children. And then we got another brand new book that came in this week by Paul Tripp. 52 uh, Meditations, devotionals actually, called Sunday Matters. He's suggesting that every Lord's Day you read one. I'm sure you can find your own way there. But 52 devotionals prepare your heart for church. Idea is that you read one on Sunday morning. The Law and the Gospel, John Colquhoun. We actually had a donor pay for a print run of 50,000 of these. It's, it's the best book I've ever read on law and gospel. So tonight you can help yourself to a free copy of The Law and Gospel by John Calhoun, a 19th century Scottish writer. If you don't have my Reformed Systematic Theology yet, you might want to pick that up. Five, three volumes are out now. This third volume that came out last year is on the Holy Spirit and Salvation. So in these volumes, we try to do five things. What does the Bible say about each doctrine? What does church history say? How do you experience it? What are the major practical takeaways of it? And then we end with doxology, with a poem or a hymn at the end of each chapter. Volume four, the last volume on the church and the last things is also done. And it's um, proofread and it's out of our hands. And it will be printed in a couple of months. It will come out in, in uh, takes a few months. So it will come out in April, the Lord willing. Thank you very much. We got time for a couple questions or not? Okay. Yes. Yeah, Um, you know, you have to find your own way there, of course, but uh, if you find a book that's very, very edifying and relates well to to your children, uh, if I I had kids three to six, yeah, I would would definitely read them these these very simple story books, Bible Bible, uh, instructive books in in family worship, yeah. Um, Older kids, you might enjoy reading, uh, if you've got older children who are saved, Wow, why not read them a, a meditation by Octavius Winslow, which is so Christ-centered and help them grow in grace or whatever. So it goes by, by the spiritual condition of your children and, and their ages. But I would say let your focus be on the Bible directly and on the Family Worship Bible Guide, which really gives you the major takeaways of that chapter. Maybe on Sunday, like my dad did, do a little extra 
and, and go to Pilgrim's Progress or go to a, a book or something like that. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. Very good question. If they're doing a couple week, you can better decide than anybody else. Are they maxed out with this? Yeah. You just gave your answer to your own question. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Well, and, and in the very young children, you've got some very young children, you know, like wilderness and beginning. We, we go through like five quick points where we ask children questions about what we're talking about. And that kind of helps them also get to, more familiar with the story. So that would, if you have the memorization at school and at church, that would, that would be a nice package where you're doing everything. 